the 1.5 degree limit is achievable. 1.5 within reach. So to keep that 1.5 goal in sight. A 1.5 degree budget. Vital 1.5 degrees climate target. Как порог полутора градусов будет достигнут. A 1.5 degree. The climate time bomb is ticking. Hello, you're listening to the climate podcast from 1.5 degrees down. In this episode, you will learn what defines the social tipping points that shift the social behaviors and norms to a new paradigm. Can it become unacceptable to drive a petrol car? Can the fear for the future of our children make us vote out politicians who deny climate change? Why increasing climate awareness can create radical movements such as ecofascism? To learn more, stay with us. We invited Victoria Spizer, the Associate Professor in Sustainability Research and Computational Social Science at the University of Leeds, to talk about her research and to teach us how to become the social tipping point creator. The session is facilitated by our co-founder, Anna Pichurina, the Associate Professor of Sociology at Karlstad University in Sweden. Thank you very much for the invitation to talk here about some of my work, though it is a passing work of many other people as well. I'm going to talk today about leveraging positive social tipping dynamics in response to the climate crisis. You probably all have already heard about tipping points in relation to climate change. So critical thresholds in major Earth system components, so-called tipping elements, beyond which a small perturbation can cause qualitative change in the future state of a system, right? So it's basically you, you tip system from one state to another in a very kind of rapid and accelerated way. At the, at the beginning, the change happens very slowly, and then it suddenly kind of reaches a threshold when the change starts to escalate and happens uh, immediately and very quickly. There are about nine global tipping points in relation to climate change and seven regional ones. So global tipping points are the ones that if they are tipping, then that affects the whole planetary system, the whole Earth, and not just like a region. And regional tipping point would then affect only a region. Some of them are already likely to happen even within the so-called safe space that um, has been defined by international communities so that even if we manage to keep the global warming below two degrees, we still may actually end up tipping certain systems, certain elements within the Earth system. And beyond that, what's concerning is that actually those tipping points are not standing on their own. They can interact. So tipping one system can actually make it more likely that you also tip another system. So that can that you kind of create a whole tipping points cascades um, dynamics. Given those uh, tipping points can interact and given some of them, we're already likely to, to trigger even within the safe space of below staying with the, below two degrees. I think it's quite clear that we have a big challenge that we're facing here that we really need kind of to try our best to keep global warming at about 1.5 degrees that we can even not um, actually afford overshooting because for a time, because while we're overshooting during this period, we can actually trigger a tipping point during that time. And that can kind of then trigger other tipping points. And then we cannot actually take back the overshooting. So it's really quite important. The challenges, of course, is that the rate of change in annual greenhouse gas emissions that are required uh, for net decarbonization is unprecedented. So the rate of change we need to see for it to happen, for, for us to stay within the safe uh, limit. 
So the question is, of course, then how can this rapid deep transformation that we need to see to be able to stay safe within the Earth system, how can this be achieved? And because like we need like to see such a rapid and such a quick, rapid and, and deep change, there's an increasing awareness and increasing attention and also interest in the research arena and academia into social tipping points. So basically kind of trying to accelerate changes in social systems to be able to respond to this great challenge. So social tipping points are threshold in dynamic social systems, where again, a small change in the underlying element or in the behavior of certain actors can trigger abrupt and nonlinear, usually irreversible change in the social system, and that the social system will then change fundamentally in its character. So the outcome of this change, however, can be both either negative, and we can define here negative in terms of further destabilizing the Earth system, or it can be positive, means like stabilizing the Earth system. So this is quite important because social tipping points are not necessarily positive. We can also see escalating social dynamics that are quite negative, like, you know, conflicts, for instance, radicalization, other kind of processes that actually make it even less likely for us to achieve the goal. So it's not necessarily always that it's only positive social tipping points that can occur. And one key paper that has come out uh, in this area was by Ilona Otto, who tried to map out the potential positive social tipping points that we need to address, how they can potentially be triggered, through which kind of interventions they can be triggered, and how they also interact and can potentially reinforce each other. So what we basically try to achieve is through those interventions where we kind of try to tip certain systems, certain elements within the social system, is that we change the state of our society from a business as usual state, that means um, fossil fuel addicted state, to a decarbonized state, so where we are getting rid of fossil fuels and change the way we run our economies and societies. And she identified a range of different social tipping elements like norms and value system, education, but also energy production and storage, um, human settlements and so on. And as you see, they are all interacting and they also all happen at different timescales. So some of the systems can change quicker, others take longer. Now, increasingly, the research that has come out in the, in the last year or so, which you might have seen this report that has been published by Systemic in collaboration with the University of Exeter and the Bezos Earth Fund, is that um, a lot of focus is going usually in terms of social change or social, positive social tipping points with a focus on technologies and adaptation of certain technologies and socioeconomic kind of changes. And in a way, that's understandable because we have quite good examples from the past where this has happened in the past, where we can see in the beginning there is a very uh, slow and very small change. But then once you reach a threshold, it escalates, shoots up, and then you have almost like 100% adoption quite often. So that has happened in the past for several infrastructure or energy systems, but also for certain goods that are now quite uh, prolific and uh, very widespread. And what this report claiming that we will probably see similar trajectories uh, for certain technologies and infrastructure changes that are related to our response to the climate emergency. So, for instance, um, solar and the renewable energies, because th their prices are now so low or becoming and become increasingly low. So we can see like an increasing adoption rate of those technologies, but also alternative proteins, uh, so replacing meat. Um, e-fuels for aviation, green ammonia for shipping, green hydrogen in steel production, heat pumps for heating, electric vehicles, and so on. But 
all systems and of course social systems including have inertias built in so actually tipping or changing a system is extremely extremely difficult because all systems tries to stabilize and stay and maintain their current state right so actually although it, it seems like you no know, it's so easy like you, you increment a change minimally after like a period of slow change and then suddenly it kind of shoots and kind of changes completely its state in fact achieving this is actually quite difficult and of course what this those examples don't show is the many technologies that have not kind of scaled up that have failed basically and what comes additionally to it in social systems of course uh, certain features that are very specific to human uh, societies things like power relations vested interests that may interfere of course in those processes that may explicitly prohibit certain processes from happening people may reject technologies and that could be for instance because they are disinformed with you know disinformation campaigns telling them that for instance electric vehicles are actually not much better than like let's say petrol based cars like you know and we've seen those arguments that people are then repeating because they have heard them somewhere else so social change in terms of not just like you no know, technologies but social change in terms of how we think how we perceive things how we evaluate things how we behave that needs to underpin kind of those socio-technological innovations otherwise they will not happen and quite often it also needs certain interventions from the government side which again like needs to be demanded by society and another kind of reason is as well that you know, we cannot just address the supply side like how we produce certain things we also need to address the demand side, and that's because we don't only face the climate crisis, we also face multiple actually ecological crises. So we have already surpassed five out of nine planetary boundaries, and climate change is only one of them. We have many other kind of issues we need to solve parallel while we also try to, to solve the climate emergency. And of course, like some of the solutions may be good kind of to try to address the climate change, but they may then address the, the planetary system on another level. So we need to take that into account. And then, of course, there is also we need to acknowledge the vast inequalities in our carbon footprint. So if, if we don't, for instance, if we kind of even try to implement all those different technologies, if we do not address the extreme overconsumption of the rich class, we will not achieve like, you know, the safe space, basically, right? Their footprint is so large that it's enough to basically tip um, many systems out of the uh, safe space. So the question becomes, OK, so how do we address that? Like, you know, how do we address also this extreme inequality that we see, not only as, as well between just the rich class and the normal people, but also like, you know, of course, between the different countries as well. Of course, we have, of course, a lot of uh, inequality at international level as well that needs to be addressed. So basically, what we need to do is not just kind of to try to implement certain technologies, but also we need to find ways to achieve tipping in terms of how we think, how we feel about certain things. So basically changing hearts and mind and that quickly as well. And that's basically what my research is focusing on. What I'm looking into is how can we achieve rapid normative change? The norms are quite important because they define what is socially acceptable uh, or desirable behavior and what is uh, seen as taboo and, and, and unacceptable. Usually in terms of ch social change of interest are injunctive or moral norms, the norms that are telling us what is kind of morally right or wrong to do, rather than like something that we just observe other people doing and what is perceived as normal. Because they are quite often not yet established, not in the same way uh, as descriptive social norms. But they are the ones who can then come a trend and then becoming social norms at a later stage. 
And norms usually that are likely to succeed in spreading and defining more widespread behavior are norms that resonating with people are those that have some kind of links with other established norms or with certain meta norms that are quite widely acceptable in a society. And research shows that, for instance, norms that are appealing to moral foundations of compassion, so usually kind of things like where we say we don't want to harm people, so that seems wrong. So any kind of norm that kind of says we cannot do that because that is harming someone is usually quite convincing. Similar like things about fairness, usually people have a very strong sense of fairness. So if if a norm if something violates our sense of fairness, then we usually are more receptive to a change in the norm or change in, in the behavior that this norm is defining. And actually, so sustainability is another kind of um, foundation that is kind of quite strongly established in one societies. However, it seems to be increasingly replaced by uh, earth stewardship or altruism, where it's more taking care of the planet and its resources and having kind of a legacy of being good ancestors um, for future generations as well. The norms that are related to some of those kind of moral foundations and meta norms um, and that seem to be now starting to get more and more traction in the societies as we observe them are on the one hand anti-fossil fuel norms. So where we basically define usage of production, but also usage of fossil fuel based uh, products as morally wrong because we make this link that they are harming other people through climate change, through invoking climate change. And that is quite often also linked to the norm of duty of care norm, because we've seen with the big success of those um, Fridays for Future, for instance, protests of, of young people striking in favor of climate policies, that um, they, of course, invoke this, this idea that we continue with our business as usual, that is, you know, fossil fuel based economy, that we are harming our own children. And there's, of course, a very strong kind of duty of care uh, that is a norm that is quite strongly established within society that we have to, the responsibility to take care of our children, to protect them, to make sure they have a livable future. And of course, if they appeal to that kind of norm by saying, well, if you are continuing with your behavior, you don't respect this norm, like, you know, you are actually harming us and harming our future. And of course, that's a very strong appeal. And again, that's kind of something that we see is becoming more established within society. So these are kind of the two norms that I think have some potential to spread further and potentially influence our behaviors. Other norms that appearing in the realm are like pro-sufficiency norms, so like you know, where we say we need to scale down our consumption, it's linked to ideas of degrowth and so on, or also anti-animal products norms. I think they're less yet um, likely to spread very quickly in, in the next years, but, you know, I might be wrong. And what those kind of norms will ultimately define is type of behaviors that will become acceptable. So that's probably linked with the 1.5 degree lifestyle. So what kind of is a range of behaviors that kind of define, okay, so if, if we want to maintain um, the 1.5 degree uh, global warming, what does it actually mean in terms of uh, what kind of behaviors are consistent with that kind of goal? You know, what kind of transport modes can we choose? What kind of modes of living? What kind of types of consumption are consistent with that? So basically that kind of defines all those behaviors. But it's not only about consumption that, uh, you know, will be defined, but also like, you know, how we behave as citizens and as people, like, you know, as neighbors, as community members. So whether we contact our MPs and tell them that we're concerned about climate change and want them to do something about it, whether we conduct our counselors, whether we talk to our neighbors about climate change and try to get them on board. So it's also that behavior is quite important too, if we want to achieve uh, social change as well.
what we know from research and also like, you know, what is quite visible now is coming that this normative change that, you know, can trigger wider social change is quite often triggered by social movements. So in the past, we've seen that, for instance, happening with social movements like the abolition movement. It was quite an important movement for uh, abolitioning of slave trade and then slavery as, as such. Then, of course, women's rights uh, movement, the suffragettes, for instance, or the civil rights movements uh, for equality of African-Americans in, in the U.S., and I think particularly the abolitionist movement is quite important because there as well, like there were some vested economic interests that were, of course, pitted against the goal of the abolitionist movement to abolish slavery and slave trade, something that, you know, people were, of course, making money out, right? So in some ways, it's a bit an interesting kind of case study because, of course, that's also the case with climate change and fossil fuels because there's a big industry. There are many countries that, you know, have vested interest in maintaining this. And, and so I think there's lots to learn from, from like, you know, the abolitionist movement and how they kind of proceeded to, to make that change happen. And of course, today we see different movements in response to climate emergency. So the one that I've already mentioned, Fridays for Future, those children who are striking for a safe uh, climate. Um, of course, indigenous communities, you know, have been working on those things for decades already. And, you know, other movements, of course, that we've seen, for instance, Extinction Rebellion and so on. In my research, we're trying to understand, you know, to what extent can we quantify the facts that those movements are having on how we think about climate change and how this is changing over time. And uh, in a paper that it's a moment in review, we kind of actually can see they had a very big influence on our thinking and that things are changing, the way we perceive things, the thing that we perceive as right or wrong. So I did mention those anti-fossil fuel norms, for instance, they're becoming now more and more established, um, but also kind of the duty of care norms and so on. The thing is, however, for things to spread for the whole society, the movement needs to go beyond itself, right? It cannot just be the movement itself. So the movement is quite important to trigger, to seed, for instance, certain new ideas and to infect maybe a few people with those new ideas, but it needs them to be carried on by others. So how we describe those tipping processes work where, uh, you know, something that, that is started by, by some actors and then spreads is um, through complex contagion. So if you think about coronavirus, for instance, which we all went through, the infection of a disease happens through simple contagion. So if you had the contact with someone who was, you know, was sick with coronavirus, then you get infected. Complex contagion doesn't work the same way. It needs usually multiple sources. So you need to basically get uh, in contact with someone that has a certain idea or a certain norm, a certain behavior multiple times and ideally from different sources. So not like, you know, the same type of person, but from different kinds of sources, for instance, like from a colleague, from a friend, from someone from your family. And only then potentially an infection can happen. So you kind of start to maybe adopt that idea. The network structure is quite important. So, you know, who are like usually networks that having certain hubs, like, you know, so where someone like you know, is quite central within a community and can kind of reach many people, usually that facilitates diffusion if those people are also linked to other hubs, like, you know, where parallel, like, you know, this exposure to a certain idea is coming from as well. And quite important for processes of spreading a certain idea, certain norms, are norm champions. So those are people that are outside the social movement, but who are early adopters of the movement and who are very well connected and ideally super spreaders who can plant that idea within their communities. And if their community member has received that from them, but also from a colleague, like so from another kind of community they're linked in, so from multiple sources, then you know they, they are more likely then to start adopting this new idea and change.
But of course, there's additional complication here as well, because, you know, there's usually not just one idea spreading in a network. There are usually multiple ideas and they're quite often competing. So you have quite often competing dynamics on their social networks happening. And there are, of course, norm entrepreneurs, so people who actively try to prevent certain norms to get established. And they, of course, try as well kind of to persuade uh, people with their arguments, counter arguments. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic that we also at the moment kind of try to study to understand better how does social processes of uh, tipping can happen, how we can accelerate them, how can we can leverage them to, to facilitate positive social change. To finish my talk here, I just wanted to maybe give a few ideas how you can become a tipping point creator, how you can be participant or contributor to this positive uh, tipping points. One way is to become a champion, you know, like for new norms. Try like to be the one who kind of champions those new ideas, those new norms in your social network. Talk about it with other people, write about it. If you do movies, then do a movie about it. If you do songs, do a song about it. I don't know, whatever. But like, you know, in any way you can basically kind of try to diffuse new ideas. Then it's also quite important to walk the talk. So people are very sensitive for hypocrisy, <laughs> hypocrisy. So if you say, you know, fossil fuels, you know, like this is morally wrong that we're still kind of using them, um, you know, giving like what havoc it creates in the world, what it leaves to our children. But then you, of course, still like, you know, fly around the world and kind of, you know, drive everywhere with your petrol car. Of course, people will not believe you that you're really concerned about it. It's not just, you know, about your individual behavior. It's just making, making yourself credible because then, of course, you're much more convincing, much more reliable source for this new norm. And then it's important also to try politically to reinforce those ideas and kind of try to make them establish also within the political class, kind of to talk with your MP about that as your concern that you want, you know, certain policies to happen with the people in the city council um, and so on. And then, of course, you and in a way you do that because you're kind of joined this talk today, you know, go organize and or join a group and try to find ways together to contribute to the social change. And I want just to give you an example. There's actually interesting civil society uh, groups out there. For instance, the Social Tipping Point Coalition in Netherlands, they specifically try to take up this idea of social tipping points, of positive social tipping points, and try to learn from research to exactly do that, to kind of create social tipping points, to empower other people to become social tipping point creators, to facilitate quick and rapid change so we can uh, respond to this big challenge that we are facing. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, we can go now to questions. Thank you so much uh, for such an interesting and uh, very thought-provoking presentation, Victoria. We have first question from I Ilana. Is there an approximate percentage of critical mass that is required to convert a new idea into new norm in a social group? What do you think? Yeah, so models uh, and, and actually empirical research shows that it's about 25%. If 25% uh, have re-adopted really a new norm or a new behavior, then it's more likely to kind of spread because it becomes a trend then. And people usually respond to trends as well because they want to be to make sure that they are going with the trend. So if something is changing, they want to be part of it. So around 25%. Now from Maria, what are the examples of successful and prompt social change and what are the reasons uh, for it to be successful? I mean, so for instance, I, I gave you some examples from the past, like you know, like the abolitionist movement. So abolitionist movement is a, a movement that, you know, obviously was fighting for about 
30 to 50 years against slave trade and uh, and, and slavery. So what they did is like, you know, a, a multiple kind of strategy. On the one hand, kind of they they flooded the public with information and with a lot of depiction of the harm that is done like, to people, um, you know, who are affected by the slave trade by giving them back their humanity in a way appealing to this compassion, right? Like, you know, that we, I think, all respond to. So, you know, making like, visible like, the suffering that those people are going through. So they were flooding this information uh, in the public, trying like for petitions kind of to establishing you know, that there's a majority it's supporting to abolishing the slave trade and, uh, and, and slavery. So they were constantly petitioning, collecting signatures and changing people's mind, but also trying to collect a signature to show to the political class that people want that change. People want to abolish that. And, you know, they're working also with parliaments, trying to put people there in place, like, you know, kind of central figures who could kind of then promote their ideas within the political class. They were working also transnationally. So, for instance, like there were abolitionist movements within the US, there were some in the UK, there were some in France, and they were kind of interchanging and trying to help each other. So it was a really a transnational movement in a way. And they also were always informed about like what other movements are doing. And you know, if some of the countries were going ahead, they sometimes would use that to pressurize their own political class saying, you see, like, you know, this country, they already have established this policy. So we are, you know, lagging behind. Now we're kind of also exploiting those rivalries to try like to uh, push like their own political class to pass certain laws. And yeah, and they weren't yet successful. Of course, there were other factors coming into play like uh, that i think the decrease in prices for sugar for instance like you know like some of the like you know the products that were kind of produced by slaves but it all coming together i think and it played an important role in this movement also they did for instance boycott the products right like you know that were kind of produced by slaves and try to also encourage other people to do so so you know like some of the texts that you also see today are multiple kind of approaches um that they kind of try to use to facilitate that change and they were successful in that regards here is another question uh, about climate activism. In Germany, climate activists like the last generation glue themselves everywhere, airports, waterways, which disrupt daily life with sometimes fatal consequences. Uh, this type of activism is often seen as teenage hysteria or climate anxiety and doesn't get to the point of actually addressing the climate crisis. How is it possible to have a pos positive social movement when we constantly hear that we are in a climate emergency running out of time, but little is being done about it. Yeah, I mean, there are different protest movements. There are some that are more radical. Some of them are like, you know, less radical, of course. And then, of course, like, you know, I think in a way you need almost a mixture of different groups and different tactics. So, for instance, just to give go back to abolitionist movements. There were, of course, violent rebellions by slaves, you know, who were killing people, right? Like, you know, who were also kind of, you know, doing terrible things there. But some would claim, like, you know, that you need also this radical flank in some way, like, you know, to put up pressure, but also kind of, you know, to make those who are less radical more likely to be the ones with whom then the political class is ready to talk to, right? You know, because they seem to be then the ones with whom you can actually negotiate. So in a way, yes, I can see, like, you know, how, like, you know, people may get annoyed by certain kind of, you know, activists. But uh, some radicality is probably necessary as part of a mixture of, of different strategies to make um, the overall uh, movement successful. Thank you. And what do you think uh, specifically on uh, using digital tools, online tools? Has it been shown in your research as particularly helpful or unhelpful or, on the other hand? It can be very helpful because it can very easily create certain viral trends. It also helps, of course, to coordinate activities and 
uh, and actions of and transnational movement, like you know, like we see today, like you know, with those young climate activists, they use those tools a lot to coordinate and to mobilize. So yes, of course, they can be useful, and they also useful to exchange ideas and to also kind of spread your ideas. So you know, you can of course kind of also try like you know, to to talk about a certain ideas through social media. It's it, it's just, but it's of course one channel, right? It needs to happen through multiple channels. So yes, social media is great, but equally, it's very important to talk to people face to face when you're meeting. Them them and talk to them about it in more depth so yeah both needs to happen when you were talking linking already to the next question it, it was interesting that there was a lot of focus and, and arguments that in order to get to social change we really need structural change we really need government intervention and uh, it doesn't matter what individuals are doing in their everyday life it's not going to be enough. And here you present a, a slightly slightly different view where it's actually puts focus, but in a different way, positive on the individual, individual agency. Yes, you can be a tipping point champion. Yeah, you can do these small steps every day. And uh, that's how you you may potentially bring change and influence others. And uh, still, what's the role of the government? And here's a question from Julia. What is the role of the government in shaping behaviors in driving social change? Yeah, I think I was emphasizing, you know, that, you know, there are two parts, right? Like, you know, of this inbuilt behavior. On the one hand, yes, like, you know, what you do as a consumer, but not so much just because, like, you know, you, the specific kind of few grams of CO2 that you, you know, maybe save because not you, you didn't use the car today, but more to make yourself as a credible messenger of, of a certain value. But the other part, which is, even more important is actually what you do as a citizen, right? Because governments will only do things if we pressure them to do things, right? Because quite often they are involved in those vested interests. They have usually quite often links with industries in the fossil fuel and so on. They're very reluctant to adopt any major changes. So what needs to happen is kind of that there is a big pressure from the public to adopt certain policies. Any kind of policies that has been kind of adopted was usually kind of, you know, achieved through a lot, a lot of campaigning from civil societies, from different groups to, to make certain things happen and change. So, for instance, you know, like, you know, quite often, you know, people are praising how the, the, the revolution in, in the renewable energy, like, you know, productions, particularly solar panels, you know, how the, the, the decrease of the price in solar panels was actually driven a lot by Germans' early adoption of the energy vendor, like, you know, where they kind of tried to change, you know, their energy production uh, and, and creating kind of re re using renewable energies, including solar. And that, you know, basically almost like, you know, gave an input to create more solar panels that kind of create a whole a whole solar panel um, industry and so on. But this policy that was introduced by the German government was demanded by the civil society, by the public. It didn't just come out of nothing, out of nowhere. It's not like, you know, that the government just kind of was nice and decided uh, we're going to do this. It's just because there was a lot of campaigning going on to pressurize the government to do this, right? And so, yes, um, the government played an incredibly role, kind of, of course, like, to create the structural change but the but for them to make this decision to actually implement those policies they need to have the pressure from us and that's like where we come in right as citizens not so much as consumers kind of as citizens where we demand this change to happen and i talk to many MPs as well like you know what they quite often say is like you know that they don't feel feel enough public pressure from the people so for instance if they're talking with their constituencies and they're hardly ever hear anything about climate change and so, of course, that doesn't create like you know, an impression to them that this is a big priority to people. And of course, they will be very reluctant to put that as their major agenda. 
right? Um, if people like, you know, talk to them about all kinds of things, but not about climate change, they make certain conclusions from that and they're very unlikely then to embrace any uh, ambitious politic, uh, policies. And that's why it's so important that you specifically say to your MP, I am concerned, I want climate change policies, I want to see radical climate change policies. Because if they don't hear it from you as a, as, as a constituent who is voting for them, they will not do anything because they feel they don't have the mandate for it, right? So it's important that we also play our role as, as citizens. Okay, so now about uh, children. What do you think? How strong is the reasoning that we need to act on climate change because we need to care for our children? It seems to me that it should be stronger than it actually is, especially among those who are promoting the business as usual scenario. Most of them have children, but they seem to discount their future. Yeah, I think many people have been converted by their children. I mean, I've I've seen that like, happening. You know, there's a whole parents for future and so on, like you know, who specifically are have responded to this movement. You know, certain people responded very strongly to this specific norm. Certain people have not yet. And I think part of the reason is that they usually either because they, they still don't see the urgency, they still maybe don't feel like the climate change is really such a big crisis. And so they don't feel like that they're really harming the children. Some of people are also just simply think they can buy their way out. They think, well, you know, I'm living in a wealthy society. I have maybe enough money to make sure like my, my children are fine. Even if the whole world is, world is burning, <laughs> my, my children are fine. And that's another argument that I sometimes see people saying in more or less explicit way. They understand like you know, the urgency, they understand like you know, how bad it is, but they think like you know, it's going to be other people's children who are going to drown or who are going to die, not their children. And I think that it's important for those people to understand, you know, like, yes, maybe if you're living in a rich country, if your children certain resources to protect them to some extent, but do you want them to live in a country that becomes brutalized because their governments are deciding to completely shut off borders against all those, you know, refugees to ha that have to flee, like, you know, from regions become uninhabitable, right? Because we made them uninhabitable with our with our behavior. Do you want your children to live in such a brutalized society? Is that what you want? They, they need to understand that this is beyond immediate threat to the life of the children, but also what kind of life are they going to live in such a world? So I think that's important. And many people don't realize those wider implications of climate change. Should we really argue with them or should we just, I mean, like if they don't believe or if they don't listen to arguments, uh, what is the best practice? Just leave them with their uh, ideas or just try to persuade them somehow. Um, it's not necessary to persuade everyone for a social change to happen because once you reached from committed 25% minority and it you know, reaches the state where you know, the majority has adopted a certain norm, let's say it's over 50%, other people you know, who still don't believe don't need to believe because they will have to nevertheless adopt to the new ways of life, the new ways of doing things, because they will be the minority and they just will have like to go along with what now is the new social norm, even if they don't believe in it, right? Even if they don't believe in the argument against it. So, you know, like in the first, like you know, when slave trade and slavery was abolished, it's not like suddenly like everyone was immediately convinced slave trade is bad, but they just have to accept like you no, know, they were defeated and they will move on <laughs> if they like it or not. But it's of course important that you know that um if these people are in key positions, for instance, they are the politicians, right? 
that's a problem. Like, you know, if they're the ones you know are not convinced, you know, that that makes it difficult because of course we rely on those kind of people in key positions to implement certain change to happen. But you know, at least in democracies, you can vote people out. <laughs> so I guess like you know, that's how you have them to deal with them, like you know, people who don't believe in climate change, but who are politicians clearly shouldn't be politicians anymore. Um, and have to be voted out. But yeah, but I mean, ultimately, yes, there will be certain people you will never convince and it doesn't matter for social change to happen. Thanks, Lord. I have another question. Uh, I can ask it quickly and then we can uh, move on to other questions. So the question is basically what, uh, so in the events of uh, social disasters or nature disasters like war in Ukraine or earthquakes in Turkey, is it worse uh, discussing climate change? Uh, is it like really something is it the right moment for us to talk about it when we have such disasters around us yes just because we talk about climate change doesn't mean we don't talk also about the other things i mean we still are able to process multiple things and try to respond to multiple crises in fact you know as i said you know climate change is also one of the multiple ecological crises that we have still to address and of course you know some of the like in terms of Ukraine, of course, you know, those things at least are somehow related, right? Because with Europe deciding that not to buy any longer gas and oil from Russia, that affects the market uh, of the fossil fuel market, and of course, and potentially the transition in Europe towards renewable energies and so on. There are still also links, you know, like, you know, from those crises onto the crisis, the climate change, they're not separately completely. It also makes it difficult kind of then to reach now agreement on the national level, right? Like, you know, we've, we could clearly see that at COP27, we have now a much more divided world as well, because some of the global south countries are actually siding with Russia, which makes it very difficult you know, to achieve agreements which are important of course to move forward on climate change so those things are not separate from each other they're not isolated they affect each other and it's important that's why to see the whole picture and how their things are related and connected thank you uh, well uh, okay i'll pick up then uh, there is a question here about fridays for future and uh, i'll kind of uh, add to that as well uh further ask uh uh, what do you think movements like Fridays for Future could do to reach and change minds of more people? And actually, what I want also to add, uh, you did show in your study that uh, the activities for Fridays for Future actually influenced the political discourse. But uh, I, I was wondering, did it reach out to any kind of behaviors of ordinary people? And if, if it did, in, in what way? And, and if it didn't, what could they do more? It did actually. So um, there is actually studies who show that you know that certain people like you know have um, changed behavior specific. For instance, like they stopped flying. Obviously, that's still not a majority thing. But as you say, like you know, sometimes at the beginning you know change slowly, right? Like and they they need to build up before they reach a certain threshold. But it clearly has affected the actual behaviors. It also affected politicians. So again, like you know, when talking to MPs and councillors, those protests have shooken up many politicians a lot yeah made them kind of quite aware like of the responsibility towards like children and they also you know have affected the children of those politicians or even like you know, of people who are running businesses some of them like saying like you know my children you know have watched those children protesting they became more aware aware of climate change and now are demanding from me certain actions for me as a politicians for me as a business leader right so it did indeed have much wider effect. And of course, it still kind of continues. I think the only problem really we had is with this movement is that while when it was at its peak point, 
the pandemic came in and of course it immediately crushed down all the activities they were no longer able to protest to co- to order uh, to organize and that did disrupt the momentum of the movement a lot which is really a shame because they were at the peak and that's when they really kind of were, were starting to reach out to more and more people yeah this kind of pandemic came in and then kind of yeah uh, disturbed this momentum and i hope they will still find a way back, like in the fight, find, find the momentum back again but I think at the moment the movement struggles a lot with how to continue I am in contact with some of them and I talk to them and some of them really don't know like you know, what is the next strategy how should we proceed like you know, how, what should we do and there's a lot of disorientation what to do next which is a bit of a shame but because I think they had really a good run and it was disrupted unfortunately What's uh, like global reach? I mean, where do you do you mainly uh, study uh, their activities in Europe or any other in any other countries? So Fridays for Future, for instance, is quite a global movement. It has like, actually quite a lot of groups in the global south, in, in, in Africa, in India, for instance, in, in, the, in Asia, in, in Philippines, and so on. So they are actually almost more active now than the European uh, counterparts. There are still some quite strong groups, for instance, in Germany, Fridays for Future is still quite strong in Sweden. Uh, in the UK, it's much more fragmented now. So it's, it's kind of different. I think my focus is usually... I usually focus on the global north because I think that's where the change needs to happen because we are the ones who are causing most of it. So I think the change, kind of the change in how we run our economies and societies needs to start here in the global north. And then we need to support while we're doing it. We need to support, of course, the global south to transition. That's where my focus is quite a lot uh, on, on the global north. You did mention that we don't always have a positive reaction. So what Is there any like example of both positive and negative uh, change to climate crisis, structural change that we experienced? I mean, the structural change that we see as positive is that the prices for renewable energies are so dropping down that adaptation of of renewables are really escalating. So that's really a a positive thing and and really good that this is happening. We need to see even more of it, but, you know, that's that's clearly good. And also kind of that there is a change in terms of kind of anti-fossil fuel norms, that it becomes more and more spread within society, that people more and more support divestment. You you see like in those movements, like, you know, divestment movements, like, you know, people don't want to invest their pensions into fossil fuels. don't want their uh, countries to subsidize fossil fuels and so on. So you clearly see anti-fossil fuel norms is spreading. In terms of negative things, what we see, for instance, in our research as well, is that some people react to the climate change threat by becoming actually more authoritarian in their response. So they're becoming more susceptible to radical ideas and, you know, that actually prevent us to finding solutions to climate change, right? So... That's unfortunately like a one negative kind of, I think, you know, effect of climate change becoming more and more like an agenda and that people become more and more aware of it, like they're also more and more aware of the threat of it. And some of people actually react to it in a very dysfunctional way by actually becoming more radical, more extreme. In, in extreme cases, you know, things like eco-fascism, for instance, you know, like, you no, know, that is actually starting to spread within the margins of the right. So where the climate crisis now no longer denied, but actually redefined in terms of like a race conflict, which is, of course, a very dangerous idea, but and hopefully will not spread. But we'll see those things happening as well. Thank you so much once again for your presentation and super, super interesting Q&A as well. But I guess it's time for us to finish. Thank you very much for your attention. This was a production of 1.5 Degrees DAO. You can join our climate community at the link provided in the notes to the podcast, produced by Julia Marisova from Shortlisted Productions.